Welcome to Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. Today we begin a new sermon series entitled Christianity's Family Tree. In this series, we'll be exploring the different branches and denominations of the Christian Church. Join us now for the message, Orthodoxy, Christ Through Eastern Eyes. Welcome to Worship Here at Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. I'm Jane Grainer and I'm the senior pastor. And today I'm going to be the only one here on our live cast this morning. Our usual tech crew of uh, Bill and Janice Elliott are out of town. Then we can't do remote feeds, so therefore Wesley nor Lauren will be joining us this morning. So I get to be with you all morning. <clears throat> and so welcome everyone. I want to particularly welcome any of you who are worshiping with us for the first time. Now later on we'll be talking about a question. What would you give to, give to get a glimpse of heaven? And that's what we're going to be talking about later in our message later on in the service. I also want to invite you, if you've not done so already this week, to make an offering to the ministry of this church. You can do that on our website, tuncd.org, on our church center app, or you can just mail a check to the church. Our new sermon series is entitled Christianity's Family Tree, and we're going to be exploring all the different branches and denominations of the Christian family and explore how we're all connected with one another and what our mutual history is, as well as those things that uh, other branches had that we might find helpful in our spiritual journey. And we can find that ex exploring other spiritual journeys might just make us better Methodists. And now let us enter into a spirit of worship and prayer with this centering psalm. I'll be reading from the 79th Psalm, beginning with verse 1. O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the air for food, the flesh of your faithful to the wild animals of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. They have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. Do not remember against us the iniquities of our ancestors. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God, of our salvation for the glory of your name. Deliver us and forgive our sins for your name's sake. Why should the nations say, where is your God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. Let the groans of the prisoners come before you according to your great power. Preserve those doomed to die. Then we will be your people, the flock of your pastor, and will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will, we will recount your praise. I chose that particular psalm as our opening psalm in light of the fact that we have just um, commemorated the 20th anniversary of 9-11. So I thought a more somber psalm might be more in keeping for the theme of this morning. For our opening prayer, I will also be using a prayer that is specifically for the anniversary of 9-11 and that was written by a United Methodist bishop. So please join me in our opening prayer. O oh God, our help and refuge, in our distress we come quickly to you. Shock and horror of that tragic day have subsided, replaced now with an emptiness a longing for an innocence lost. 
We come remembering those who lost their lives in New York, Washington, D.C., and Pennsylvania. We are mindful of the sacrifice of public servants who demonstrated the greatest love of all by laying down their lives for friends. We commit their souls to your eternal care and celebrate their gifts to a fallen humanity. We come remembering and we come in hope, not in ourselves, but in you. As foundations we once thought secure have been shaken, we are reminded of the illusion of security. In commemorating this tragedy, we give you thanks for your presence in our time of need, and we seek to worship you in spirit and in truth, our guide and our guardian. Amen. And now, even though we cannot be together in the same space, we are together in the same time. So my prayer for you is, peace be with you. Our scripture reading this morning is from the Epistle to the Hebrews. I'll be in the 11th chapter, again, starting with the first verse. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Indeed, by faith our ancestors received approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to set out for a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he set out not knowing where he was going. By faith he stayed for a time in the land he had been promised, as in a foreign land, living in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith he received power of procreation, even though he was too old, and Sarah herself was barren, because he considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore from one person, and this one as good as dead, descendants were born, as many as the stars of heaven, is the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. All of these died in faith without having received the promises, but from a distance they saw and greeted them. They confessed that they were strangers and foreigners on the earth, for people who speak in this way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land that they had left behind, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Indeed, he has prepared a city for them. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely, and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. A couple of weeks ago, I was listening to a fascinating lecture. It was a lecture about genetic heritage. And it was actually the first lecture in a course that was entitled Identity in the Age of Ancestral DNA. Uh, all of us have formed an identity based on what we've been told about where our family came from. For example, based on what uh, the stories that have been passed down to me, I've been told that my family is a mixture of German and Celtic. My last name, Grainer, is German, uh, but we have records and stories from other branches of the family that show us coming from Wales and Scotland. But what if your generic heritage does not match up with what you've been told? 
Well, nowadays, anyone can take a genetic test to find out about their genetic makeup. What if you find out, for example, that you were adopted, but you never were told that? What if you find out that your father is not your father? Or that the person you thought was a full sibling is actually a half sibling? The genetic testing company 23andMe has to provide psychological training to their customer, uh, the, the, those that you call on the customer support line, because it's not uncommon for a person to receive their genetic profile and something in that profile makes their world fall apart. The customer service reps at genetic testing companies routinely have to deal with, uh, with persons who have been left distraught by the results of their genetic profile. But what if surprise in the profile isn't about your family, but about your broader heritage? And that was the subject of the lecture that I listened to a few weeks ago. And the professor told of students who, when they were given the results of their genetic profile, they were, they were disappointed that there weren't any skeletons or surprises in their family closet. And that was me. My genetic profile was utterly predictable. Like most white Americans, I'm basically just a Western European mutt. A lots, of, lots of DNA from the British Isles with a good mixture of French and German. The most interesting thing actually was that I am 2% Neanderthal. Now, most people of European descent carry some Neanderthal DNA and actually very few, if any Africans carry any Neanderthal DNA, which got me to thinking that um, white people being part caveman might explain white supremacy. But I think that's actually an insult to Neanderthals, which whom I'm actually quite fascinated with. I'm afraid we will not be able to blame white supremacy on our genes. While some of the professor's students were disappointed to find that their genetic profile matched their sense of identity, others were deeply troubled by their results. Now, yes, there were white students who learned that they carry a significant amount of African DNA, and they were disturbed by that. But, you know, this really isn't as, quite as simple as that. I remember a few years ago watching a PBS documentary where 100 New Yorkers were given genetic, uh, genetic tests. They were then gathered in Central Park where a huge map of the world had been laid out on the ground there. Then the participants were given their genetic profiles and they were told to go stand on the continent in the map that most, most closely matched their genetic profile. And I still remember the young black man who slowly walked over to the European continent with a look of utter confusion on his face. They interviewed him later. His identity has always been that he was African-American. Uh, his family was black. His neighborhood was black. He had always gone to predominantly black schools. He looked black, and yet he carried within him more European DNA than African DNA. I really wish they would have gone back, say, a year later and interviewed him again, because I would be very curious how he has since processed this new information about his genetic heritage. Well, even if they're surprised or even shocked by the results, most people want to know more about their heritage, more about where they came from, more about the roots from which they grow. I recently started taking a class on Judaism here in, in Denton in the, in the local synagogue. 
It's the same class that people might take if they were interested in converting to Judaism. And very many people in the class, that's exactly what they're hoping to do. But there's also a few people in the class that are taking it because they got genetic testing and found out that they were part Jewish, which they had never known. And now they wanted to explore more deeply their heritage. This, the need, this need and desire to know more about our heritage, though, is not limited to just uh, genetics. We also have a curiosity about our spiritual heritage. Now, most of us who are watching this are probably United Methodist, but you may have grown up in a different tradition than that. So how are all the different kinds of churches related? Uh, how does the different branches of the different parts of the Christian family tree, how are they connected to one another? And how does the, the DNA of a particular denomination, how does that affect the way uh, the people in that tradition practice the Christian faith? Well, this is gonna be the subject of our new sermon series, Christianity's Family Tree. In a way, it's an extension of the sermon series that I gave last spring on the world's religions. Uh, you may remember that it was entitled The Warmth of Other Suns. In that series, I tried to provide just at least the most basic information about that world religion, but then tried to lift one or two things from that religion that could be helpful to us in our Christian spiritual journeys. And my objective in this sermon series will be similar. What are the basic teachings of each denomination or branch of Christianity? And what in that tradition might be helpful to us as United Methodists? And in addition, I wanna to try to find and explore the Christian heritage that we hold in common. How can we have unity in Christ despite sometimes some profound differences of belief? Now, the Christian religion is divided into three main branches. Uh, there's Protestantism, which includes us Methodists. There's Catholicism, and there's Eastern Orthodoxy. Now, historically, most Americans uh, belong to one of the uh, offshoots of the Protestant branch, and Roman Catholics make up another 20% of the population. On the other hand, that third branch of Christianity, Eastern Orthodoxy, has approximately seven members in the USA, but that represents only 2% of the American population. Yet in most parts of Eastern Europe and in the Middle East, Orthodox Christians make up the majority of Christians in those countries. And this is primarily because most white Americans like myself are from Western Europe. And so when our ancestors immigrated, they brought the forms of Western Christianity with them that is Protestantism and Catholicism. It wasn't until much later waves of immigrants that we started to see members from Eastern Orthodox churches coming to America here to live. Now, my first experience with Eastern Orthodoxy was when my sister married into a Greek family and they were members of the Greek Orthodox Church. Now, if you've seen the movie, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, then you will have had at least some exposure to uh, the Greek Orthodox Church. My Greek brother-in-law likes to joke that the movie, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, was an exaggeration of Greek family, but not by much. The Greek Orthodox Church is only one of several uh, sub-branches of the Eastern Orthodox Church that can be found in America. 
there's maybe about two dozen different branches. The main ones, though, are Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Armenian, and Coptic Orthodox churches, and, and many others as well. The Eastern Orthodox say that their church was founded on Pentecost Sunday, when the Holy Spirit descended upon the Gospels 50 days after Christ had ascended into heaven. And for the first 1,000 years of church history, the church was more or less a loosely structured but unified institution. Not long after Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire in the fourth century, the Emperor Constantine decided to divide the empire into two halves. The Western Empire would be governed from Rome, while the Eastern Empire would be governed from the new city of Constantinople, which is modern-day Istanbul. And eventually, the eastern half of the empire Byzantium. Now, as Byzantium grew more powerful and Rome grew less powerful, gradually cracks began to form between the eastern and western halves of the church. In the west, they spoke Latin. In the east, they spoke Greek. Moreover, the bishop of Rome insisted, that is the pope, insisted that he had supreme authority over the entire church. The Eastern bishops refused to recognize that authority. And there was also a major theological dispute called the filioque dispute. But it is such a tangle of theological weeds that I'm not even going to try to get into it in the course of this sermon. Just trust me when I say back then it was really a big deal. And so what came next then was the Great Schism. In the year 1054, uh, the divisions of the Eastern and Western sides of the church had just reached a crescendo. So that year, the Pope excommunicated on the Eastern side of the church and the, the, the Patriarch or the Bishop of Constantinople excommunicated all the Christians in the West, splitting the church in two. And from then on, the Western half of the church became known as the Roman Catholic Church and the East side became known as the Eastern Orthodox Church. And to this day, both sides claim to be the one true church established by Christ and born of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. In fact, it was not until 1965 that each church lifted its excommunication of the other church which is all just enough to make a Protestant giggle. Nevertheless, many today, including myself, believe that the Western church has a lot to learn from the Eastern church and vice versa. Well, first of all, exactly what does the term orthodox mean? It means both right doctrine and right worship. The Orthodox church believes that in their doctrines and in their form of worship, they have handed on the one original and true apostolic faith that was revealed by the Holy Spirit. They believe their doctrines and forms of worship have been received free from human error. Just as some Protestant fundamentalists will say that the Bible is inerrant, that is its truth without any mixture of error, the Orthodox would say something similar about their doctrines. Their doctrines, in their view, have been protected by the Holy Spirit and are therefore infallible. Even more than scripture, the Orthodox look toward the historic creeds and the early ecumenical councils 
as really more of the ultimate authority than scripture. The historic creeds, which came out of those early councils, include uh, ones that we would know, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. They're both part of the United Methodist Book of Worship. But while Protestants look to scripture as the primary source of authority, the Orthodox look to the traditions of the church as the primary source of authority. It is the tradition found in these historical creeds and in the early ecumenical councils and in the writings of the early church fathers that correctly interpret scripture to us. Their argument is that it was the early church fathers and the early ecumenical councils that decided which books belonged in the Bible. So the writings of the early church fathers cannot be, in their view, superseded, altered, or ignored. In fact, if you were to join an Eastern Orthodox Church, one of the vows of membership that you would be asked to make is that you would accept the interpretation of Scripture that the Church has set forth as the one and true uh, interpretation of Scripture. Now, though we Methodists have tradition as part of our Wesleyan quadrilateral, we do not assign it the same level of authority as do the Eastern Orthodox we would say that scripture has primary authority, but that tradition along with reason and experience are also sources and norms for theological reflection. Now, while I don't believe that the Eastern Orthodox Church is the recipient of the one true faith handed down from the apostles, its doctrines and its forms of worship are very ancient, even to the point where I would at least afford them the title of oldest child within the Christian family tree. As a most ancient church, the Orthodox remind us that there is a foundation of doctrine that grounds the Christian faith. So many of us think of ourselves as progressive or liberal Protestants, but we still need doctrine to tether and ground us in our explorations. Now, we may interpret the ancient doctrines in new ways, but there is a profound wisdom that we can find in those doctrines and they enrich us to a great degree. That's why I still think it's important to recite the historic creeds on a regular basis as part of our worship. And not if, but when. We worship together face to face. I hope that we'll be able to recite those creeds together once more. Now the Orthodox have also stressed different aspects of Christian theology than have the Western churches of Protestantism or Catholicism. In the Western Church, we have placed much more emphasis on original sin, on God's holy wrath, and on Christ's death upon the cross as a sacrifice for sin. We look at Christ's death on the cross as the saving event that enacted reconciliation between God and humanity. Now, by contrast, the Orthodox believe that it was not so much original sin that was handed down to us from our earliest ancestors, but it was the reality of death and all that death brings to us, anger and lust and hate and greed and fear and sickness. They favor the ransom theory of atonement where Jesus lays down his life as a ransom to evil, thereby freeing us from its grip. And there's much more emphasis on the resurrection as the final defeat of evil. And while then Christians in the West see the cross as the saving event, for Eastern Christians, it is the incarnation that they consider the saving event, the incarnation where God was born in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. We are saved 
because God chose to become one of us. We're saved by the very fact that God decided to show up. Now, this is actually much closer to my own theology of salvation. Western Christianity places so much emphasis on our sinfulness and God's wrath and the need to take the punishment that we so richly deserve. It stands upon this premise that the humans are so sinful that they deserve nothing but death and eternal punishment. In the Orthodox mindset, humanity sins and rebels out of ignorance and because evil has us in bondage. Christ saves us by showing up and then showing us how to live our lives by the example of his own life and his own teachings and then freeing us from the bondage of evil by both the cross and the resurrection. We then can enter into our journey of what we call sanctification, where we become more Christ-like as we progress in our Christian journey. The corresponding idea in Eastern Orthodox theology is called deification. That is, as we become free from the ultimate power of evil, then we are invited to the life of God as we become a new creation. And yes, as we become more Christ-like. As one famous line goes in Eastern Orthodox theology, God became what we are so that we may become what God is. This Eastern Orthodox principle is very close to the Wesleyan concept of going on to perfection. And later on, when we talk about Methodism in our sermon series, we will discover a very uh, unusual connection between John Wesley and Eastern Orthodoxy that is not very well known among Methodists. Now, the other side of the Orthodox coin from right doctrine then is right worship. The liturgies used in the Eastern Orthodox Church are quite ancient and, and they can be very beautiful. I once heard someone talk about the difference between traditional and contemporary worship styles. Uh, this pastor said in well done contemporary worship the worshipers should feel as if heaven has come down to earth and met them right, right where they are. In well-done traditional worship, the worshiper should feel as if they've been transported up to heaven and are now in the presence of God. Eastern Orthodox worship, then, is traditional worship on steroids. The theology of worship in the Orthodox Church is that the congregation is given a chance to experience heaven and the kingdom of God as, as if they were being transported into God's own throne room in heaven. It is showing the worshiper a glimpse of the real world that lies behind the shadow world of our own everyday existence. And that's one of the reasons Eastern Orthodox churches are so richly decorated. It is designed so that an Eastern Orthodox church doesn't look like anything else that we see in this world. A friend of mine once had to go to an Eastern Orthodox church for a meeting of some kind, and she took her young daughter with her. And when the daughter looked into the sanctuary with all of the icons and all this elaborate finery, she exclaimed, Mom, it looks just like heaven. And if the priest had been there and overheard her, he might have said, that's exactly what we were going for. And this points, I think, to one of the things that writer of the Epistle to Hebrews was trying to tell us. All of these died in faith without having received the promises, but from a distance, they saw and greeted them. They confessed that they were strangers and foreigners on the earth. 
for people who speak in this way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Indeed, he has prepared a city for them. Well, Orthodox worship can be, can be very sensual. There's art everywhere. There's elaborate vessels of gold and silver, and the priest's vestments make mine just pale in comparison. And there are smells and bells and sounds of liturgy. And I know one thing that people usually associate with Eastern Orthodox worship is the use of icons. Now, icons are artistic representations of various saints or scenes from the Bible. And they're venerated during worship as worshipers bow down or they may kiss the icons. And the priests often um, carry them as part of the processional. Now, it's, it's important to remember that the Eastern Orthodox do not worship the icons, they venerate them as an image uh, that points to a saint or a biblical scene that it depicts. Now, over the centuries, some have condemned the use of icons as a form of idolatry. Well, the counter argument to that is that now that God has become flesh in Jesus Christ, this points to God's redemption of the material world. And this is, one, this is how one Orthodox theologian wrote, God took a material body, thereby proving that matter can be redeemed. God has deified matter, making it spirit-bearing. And if flesh has become a vehicle of the spirit, then so, in a different way, can wood and paint. The orthodox doctrine of icons is bound up in the orthodox belief that the whole of God's creation, material as well as spiritual, is to be redeemed and glorified. Well, frankly, I couldn't agree more. Icons are often called windows to heaven or a hymn to God in color. They're seen as prayers in and of themselves. And likewise, we are called to be living icons through whom others can see the face of Christ. And icons have played a significant role in my own spiritual journey. I've used icons for prayer and meditation. For example, several years ago, for the entire season of Advent, for uh, once a day, I read the Annunciation story from the Gospel of Luke. That is the story where the angel Gabriel tells the Virgin Mary that she's going to give birth to the Messiah. And as I read that story, I also prayed that uh, for whatever new thing that God might be bringing into or birthing in my life. And I did this while gazing upon this icon of the Annunciation. Well, one final thought that I think we can glean from Orthodox worship. In Eastern Orthodox worship, the participants are given a glimpse of heaven. And as one Orthodox priest wrote, you are never as close to heaven as when you are worshiping with the congregation. Therefore, you are never closer to your loved ones who have gone before than when you are in worship. I think that's pretty beautiful too. When we worship, and especially when we participate in the Sacrament of Holy Communion, we are participating with all who've gone before and all who will come after us. As the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight in the sin that clings so closely, and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith 
who has taken his seat on the right hand of the throne of God. Amen. And now, with the confidence of the children of God, let us pray the prayer that our Lord taught us. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Your action item for this week, be an icon through whom other people can get a glimpse of heaven. And now receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you with glimpses of heaven on earth so that we might become an icon of light to others. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now love your neighbor and go in peace. We hope you enjoyed or were blessed by today's service. Join us next Sunday here on Facebook Live at 11 a.m. Next week, we'll continue our sermon series exploring the different branches and denominations of the church in Christianity's family tree. If you can't join us live, you can always listen to the recording of our service. You'll find that on our podcast, Jane's Most Excellent Church Adventure. God bless you in the week ahead. We'll see you Sunday at Trinity United Methodist Church.